In Session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. Uh, before I begin with the book of the week for this past week, this week's book of the week is The Power of Different by Dr. Gail Saltz. The Power of Different the link between disorder and genius. And uh, I've not read the book. I think it's a newer book. Um, and I liked the title and it reminded me of a book I did a few months ago, uh, a first rate madness, which was about how some of the greatest leaders in history had some type of mental illness that actually helped them be the great leaders that they were. So it wasn't that despite their mental illness, they were able to be great leaders, but actually because of those mental illnesses or issues they were dealing with. And I think this book has a similar feel to it. Uh, so looking forward to reading that this week and sharing it with you on next Monday's show, The Power of Different by Gail Saltz. Uh, but the back book for this past week was Visual Intelligence by Amy Herman. Visual Intelligence, Sharpen Your Perception, Change Your Life. And it really was an interesting book. The author is a lawyer and an uh, art historian, and she teaches a class called The Art of Perception, which she has taught to, uh, it's like a workshop that she's taught uh, with police officers, medical students, people in the FBI, people in business, uh, to help improve their visual intelligence or their ability essentially to see and describe what they are seeing. And even uh, the medical students who went through her course, they actually were found to be better at diagnosing patients afterwards. So it actually improved their ability to be able to diagnose because they were better at actually observing their patients and taking in all the information. And so throughout the book, it was, it was interesting that there's many works of art or photographs that she lists and has you do some exercises with them, a lot of times saying, describe what you see. And it's interesting uh, going through the, the exercises, going through these different images. Uh, I was struck by how often I thought I was seeing the painting, but there was so much I was not seeing. Or I thought I was seeing the painting, but there were so many assumptions that I had. That, that was really interesting, and I'll touch on that a little bit. But going on not seeing the whole thing, uh, I've talked about this before, and she mentions it several times in the book, the idea of inattentional blindness, that sometimes something that is very, what appears to be obvious, or maybe in hindsight becomes very obvious, we can sometimes miss. 
the uh, a common study or a famous study that looked at this was the invisible gorilla and that was and I actually read that book and talked about it last year the invisible gorilla but this idea uh, the study where you were asked to measure or count how many times people wearing black shirts passed the basketball in a video and so you were really focused on that and what you didn't notice or what many people would miss is that midway through the video, someone in a gorilla suit would walk through and get into the middle of the screen and thump their chest, kind of like a King Kong or Tarzan type of thing, and then walk out of the screen. And most people would actually miss the gorilla, thus the name, the invisible gorilla. And actually, I myself, the first time I ever did it, was shocked that I didn't see this gorilla, and I think of myself as a perceptive or observant person, but I didn't see this person in a gorilla suit, which was quite remarkable. So very often we might not realize what we're not seeing, especially when we're seeing something we've seen many times before. So we might think, well, I've been in my office before, I've been in this place before, I know the layout, but actually there's so much that we don't see and we don't pay attention to. So part of the book um, although I don't think she talks about it in the way of being mindful or being present, but it has to do with paying more attention to our surroundings to see what's actually there. So everything she talks about in the book, she uses works of art to illustrate the uh, techniques or to illustrate the concepts and the points she's trying to make, but the applications are for our real life and real uh, world scenarios. And she also actually talks about many uh real-world examples, including criminal investigations that were solved because someone was able to perceive something that others weren't. Or if you put it another way, they were having a hard time solving it because people were missing something that was there. For example, she shares one murder story where they had video footage of what they thought might be or who they thought might be the murderer walking in and out of the person's apartment. So she walked into the apartment and she left and then the person was found dead, but they had no murder weapon. They couldn't see the murder weapon or anything that would imply that she was in fact the murderer until one person noticed, even though maybe I don't want to give a number, but many, many people had seen the video footage over and over again, but they noticed that actually the woman's pants were inside out when she left the building. And this was an indication that likely she was trying to hide the blood that occurred during the murder, but no one had noticed this, even though once they noticed it, it was very obvious because she was wearing cargo pants, and so the pockets were sticking out in weird ways and things were looking a little bit odd, but no one noticed it, not just because they weren't looking for it, but they were looking for other things. They were looking for a murder weapon or looking for something in the bag that she was carrying that might indicate or give them some clues or evidence. But people were missing something that we think might be more obvious. And that's another point that's important to note, that once we know something and once you see something, uh, it's hard to unsee it. And it can sometimes be strange to think that you didn't see it to begin with. There's this image of a cow that he, uh, she shows, which... Um, at first glance, it just looked like a blob to me. But once the cow was outlined, um, it's called Renshaw's cow, you realize how obvious it is. And now when I go back and look at the image, it's so obvious it's a cow, I can't unsee it anymore. And it's kind of interesting. I'm looking at the image right now, and it looks so obviously like a cow, but I'm trying to remember what it looked like the first time I saw it when I had no idea. It just looked like 
a blob, maybe some kind of Rorschach test, as she mentions, that's supposed to try to be a subjective test of what's on my mind or on my unconscious. So it's really interesting to see all the ways that we miss things in our surroundings. And so she asks uh, in her workshop and throughout this book for people to look at pieces of art, to look at paintings and photographs, and to describe what they see. And that sounds a lot easier than it is, because first of all, we very often miss very important details, things that you can't imagine you missed because they actually are so significant. But also, we describe things in ways that aren't really about observation or really seeing what we are seeing, but more like perception, where our own biases and things that we think or feel or prejudices that we might have come through. So, for example, you might see someone sitting at a, a table and you say, oh, they are sad and lonely, which are subjective terms. They're not objective. And you don't realize how often we do these things when trying to communicate with one another and describe things. So the focus that she has or she invites you to look at is notice those times when you're being ob uh, subjective. And if you're really trying to just describe something, you should be doing it in an objective way. So you can say the woman is sitting in the corners of her mouth or are pointing down, um, but you can't say she's depressed or lonely or make an assumption. Or assume that if a man and a woman are sitting next to each other, they're husband and wife, or that's a mother and a daughter, or whatever else it might be. But you start to realize how often we make assumptions and we communicate these assumptions to one another. And she points out cases where when there's an assumption made early on, then the rest of the investigation might fall on what was considered to be fact, but actually was not a fact. It was an assumption based on a bias or based on a judgment that someone made, not just what was there. So as much as the book is about observation, and a lot of it is that, about sharpening your perception, as the subtitle implies, a lot of it also has to do with communication and how we convey information to one another. And she talks about in the business world, how people often, for example, are giving evaluations to someone and we interject our emotional or judgmental terms, like you've been lousy this quarter, or you've been really lazy and that that doesn't go over very well. But if we are specific and keep it more as of an observation and say, for example, you didn't meet 30% of your quota for this month, that goes over much better than we add the ju judgmental or subjective terms. And she was talking a lot about the business sense, but this is also true about uh, relationships. And we talk a lot about how when we're talking to our partners, rather than uh, using judgmental terms and rather than using criticism, for example, saying you're lazy, we want to be specific and give a complaint. So instead of saying, you're so lazy, you didn't do this, you say, I'm upset that last night you did, didn't do this thing be specific and let that person know. And when we do that, the communication goes uh, much better. She also actually talks about other skills of communication where we repeat to each other uh, what the person is saying. And I thought it was interesting that in this book about uh, visual intelligence and looking at art, there was a lot of these things about communication. And so specifically, she was talking about um, these three R's, and one of the R's was repeating. But in communication, how when you're talking to someone, rather than just assuming they know what you said, have them repeat it to you. 
And of course, it depends on your relationship with them and you want to make sure it doesn't come off as you're undermining them. So if you tell someone, repeat what I said, depending on who you are and who they are, it might come off the wrong way. But especially in a relationship, we know that to really show each other that we understand what the person is thinking or what they experienced or what they're trying to tell us, we can repeat what they said in our own words or as close to their words as we can to make sure we're getting each other and that this can be very helpful. So I thought that was interesting that in a book about art or what seemed to be art, there was um, this a lot of things about communication and how to improve our communication skills. And one of them was uh, using the repeating technique to make sure the other person has understood what we said and we feel that we have been understood. So I, I really did enjoy the book and I noticed... Um, that when I went back and she says it and the book to go back and look at some of the paintings earlier on, I was more observant. I did pick up on more things and things looked different than when I had started the book. So I thought that was interesting. So I probably didn't put as much time as I could have in all the exercises uh, because I was definitely trying to make sure I finished it in the week that I had committed to it. Um, but even still, I noticed that I, I was more observant or even just in my day-to-day, -day, it made me become more mindful of perceiving the things around me. And she even shares stories of people who, uh, in real-world situations, noticed a danger or noticed uh, that something was wrong. Her herself being in a hotel, hearing a man and a woman having what seemed to be like an argument and calling the front desk. And because of that, they actually were able to break up a prostitution ring that was being, um, you, the, that hotel was being used to help run that prostitution ring. And she helped break that up because of what she observed and how she communicated it to uh, the front desk and what happened after that. So I did notice that I myself was more observant or tried to pay more attention to my surroundings, something that she invites people to do that very often people don't notice a lot of the details in our day-to-day -day and in our everyday world. And I thought that was interesting. And the good news is, uh, like emotional intelligence, as she describes it, your visual intelligence is something that you can improve and work on. And doing a book like this or reading a book like this or her Art of Perception class can help you with that. So it was an interesting book I'd recommend uh, to the listeners, if you haven't read this already, it's a fairly new one. Um, so it was new for me. Visual Intelligence by Amy Herman. Definitely check that out. And the book of the week for this week, again, is The Power of Different, The Link Between Disorder and Genius by Gail Saltz. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Jalakwi. We'll be right back. Back to In Session with Dr. Fatty Talakwi, studio number 3104410555. I wanted to talk a bit about politics, not about specific politics and political issues, but more in a general way. Um, and first, starting talking about relationships and making a connection. So uh, very often when I talk about relationships, I mention how when you see couples and they have an adversarial stance with each other, when I say they bring the courtroom into their bedroom or the courtroom into their relationship, it brings a lot of problems with it. When you see them 
discussing any issue. They don't really dis- discuss, they argue and they really debate and they're trying to win against each other. They're trying to say, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm the good partner, you're the bad partner. I'm the victim, you're the perpetrator. And it's a me versus you type of a scenario rather than us together. And very often when couples come to therapy, they look at the therapist as the judge and jury and even executioner of who's going to say who's good and bad, who's right and wrong, um, make my partner know that they're the bad person, they're the guilty one. And they really look to the therapist to give them that reassurance. So you even recognize that they're coming in less because they want to work on things and really solve issues, but they want a third party to tell them that they are right and their partner is wrong. And I feel that so strongly in couples therapy very often when the couple comes in that there's this feeling they look at you in a certain way of give me that feeling that I'm right and he or she is wrong. Or the way they present things is very much like a lawyer presenting their case, giving their evidence as to why the partner is wrong, why they are right, or how hurt they were, or even they'll say, isn't it wrong that she did this, or isn't it wrong that he did that, waiting for you to scold them and also give that confirmation of that. So it becomes me versus you, and what I always tell couples is um, we have to change a few things. One is rather than pointing the finger at each other, we're going to have to have both of you point the finger towards yourselves and think, what can I do better What can I do different to improve this relationship? Or even before that, what do I do that contributes negatively to this relationship? How do I hurt my partner? And related to that, what can I then do to make things better? So rather than just pointing the finger at each other, we point the finger towards ourselves and recognize, I need to change me. And that means I have to also accept that I am part of the problem. It's not about blame, but actually if you recognize the part of the problem you are contributing to you can also be part of the solution and you can't change the other person you can only change what you do and your own actions so those are some shifts that have to take place and then also this feeling of it's not you versus your partner it's you and your partner together we're not trying to win against each other we're trying to win with each other and make things better so you see this a lot in couples that they come in with this adversarial an almost courtroom type dynamic of me versus you. And so now the reason why I'm making that connection to the political sphere is what we see in our political system, especially in the United States, it's very much a us versus them, me versus you dynamic. Basically, if we boil it down, Republican versus Democrat. And we have teams, we have identities, and we want to win. And even they talk about the elections and we do talk about winning. And in a way it makes sense, but it's similar to how we talk about sports teams. We want to make sure our guy or our girl wins and the other person loses no matter what the situation is. If it's right or wrong, or if actually this candidate is a good candidate or not, or if we even agree with them, it's less about that and more about the team winning. Even when it comes to agreeing, there's very little room for people to think on their own, because if your team thinks a certain thing about a certain issue, you have to think that thing about that issue. You don't really get a chance or a choice to think about it on your own. And this is really unfortunate because it's leading to a lot of this polarization that we've seen in recent years. And um, 
social media and the internet has also made this worse, but we've seen a polarization where people are just becoming more and more entrenched in the way they see things and the way they view the world. And they're more focused on being right than on finding what is right or finding a truth for themselves. And so we surround ourselves with people who believe the things we do. We read the articles that agree with us. We listen to the speakers who prove our point or support our point and even the research that supports our point. And we don't want to hear the opposite side because it's becoming less about figuring out what's right and more about wanting to be right, wanting to win. And what I actually think is the truth is that most of us, and I can speak for myself, on a lot of key issues aren't as 100% sure as we like to pretend in order to show the other side that we're right and they're wrong. There's a lot of issues that we might feel strongly about and really feel more securely about, but I think most people with most issues, if you really ask them and you really uh, try to get at why they believe what they believe or why they think a certain issue is supposed to be a certain way and shouldn't be the other way, they very often are not as sure as they'd like to make it seem that they are. And I realized that for myself as I was thinking about certain issues and I was talking to a friend and I realized that we often like to think we know what we say we're going to vote for, but we don't. Um, and related to this, some research has been done that shows that very often when it comes to moral issues and political issues cannot often fall under that umbrella. Although we think we're making a logical and rational decision, what we're actually doing is we're having an emotional response to the moral issue, and we are basing our judgment on that, and then we go after the fact in an ad hoc way and then come up with reasons why we believe what we believe to be true. So if we believe something about gay marriage, for example, it's usually an emotional reaction that we have, and then when we are asked, why do you believe what you believe? We have all these reasons, but the reasons actually come after the fact. It's more about a feeling rather than something that we've thought about. And so the reason why I think this is really a negative thing for many reasons, but one big issue is that we're not learning from each other and growing by having debates with one another that are actual debates or discussions or actual discourse where we're trying to learn from one another. And so what I tried to do a little bit this weekend when I had this conversation with my friend, or actually it was before the conversation that that I thought about this, was to listen to some people who saw things differently from me. So some intellectuals online who didn't necessarily believe what I believed or disagreed with, with what I um, feel or believe about certain issues. And I'll be honest, it felt uncomfortable. It didn't feel good when I started doing it because I thought that these people, they actually were smart and they were making some good points. And I didn't like how it felt that it was challenging what I felt I knew or what I wanted to tell myself I knew to be true because the points they were making was challenging that. And so it creates some cognitive dissonance because we have this feeling that I know something. We tell ourselves I know something, but then we hear something that's a little bit different from that. And because it challenges that, it doesn't feel very good because you're like, wait, this thing that I thought I knew for sure, now I'm hearing some evidence or some ideas or arguments that makes me question that and I don't like that. And we'd rather pretend it doesn't even exist. But the problem is that we have this assumption or this feeling that I have to be 100% sure 
certain about this or that I am 100% certain and that I'm smart and the other side is idiots, which is a lot of what we do now is how could you disagree with me on this issue? You must be uneducated, stupid, immoral, and whatever other judgmental negative thing about the other side we can think of. And so because I so wholeheartedly believe that what I'm saying is the absolute truth, and I take it as this absolute truth, I don't want to hear something that's different from that. And so to me, sometimes it's not that different from the dogma people have when it comes to religion, as if because it's you know in the book of God, there can be no challenging of it. And so sometimes we take our political beliefs to be the same way. Because this is 100% the truth and the moral and the right way, I don't want to even hear anything that opposes that. And so in hearing these people who I disagreed with, again, it was uncomfortable. I didn't like it. And I think to do it again, which I will do, it takes almost some, you know, I have to get ready for it. It's not something that feels so good because that discomfort comes from challenging something that I thought I knew or realizing that, wow, I might have to rethink some of the things I believed so strongly. Um, but I did grow from seeing what these people had to say. doesn't mean it's always going to change your mind and you're going to switch what you believe, but a few things can happen. One is you understand things in a deeper way because you see the full picture better. When you only hear the arguments in your favor, you don't have a full understanding of the issue to see what's happening on the other side. And actually, even if you want to debate the issue and be better at it, you need to understand the other side's point of view or else you won't be very good at challenging what they have to say. Uh, but even still, to have a more balanced picture and a fuller understanding of any issue, we need to hear from all sides. I was going to say both, but realizing that it's not always just really two. Very often we have these false dichotomies that get created, and that's another dynamic that gets created because of the political system. It's either you believe what the Democrats think or the Republicans think, and there's really no in-between or no other option or any gray area. It's really black and white or blue and red in this case, and that's all we're really allowed to, to think about an issue. But so I was able to really uh, hear the other side and and realize I had to be real with myself and say, you know what, as much as I think I know what's right, sometimes I'm not so sure, or there's some questions that I have. And I think what's sad is that we're missing that opportunity to have healthy debates and discourse with people who disagree with us to try to understand things better, to say, you know what, I, I thought I believed this about abortion or about birth control or about pro-choice, pro-life, but now I'm not so sure and I want to understand what you think. Maybe that'll help me understand it better. But because we're so adversarial and it's so, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm smart, you're stupid, I'm moral, you're immoral about every issue, we can't have those kind of conversations because we're afraid to concede that maybe we're not so sure because everyone has parading and masquerading in a way that they're 100% certain about what they believe and it's the absolute truth, when I really think the truth of it is most of us are not that sure. And that's even why we're afraid to hear the other side, because we know that there is some truth there. And if I actually hear them out, I might have to challenge this idea and this notion that I have in my brain or that I'm trying to convince myself of that I know the truth that I have the truth in my head and I'm, I'm right about it. Uh, so this is an invitation to myself, but to everyone listening, that whatever you think and whatever you feel about political issues, make sure you're not only hearing one side 
of the issue. Make sure you're not just listening to people who believe exactly what you believe. And we know that things like Facebook actually make this a lot easier as far as hearing what you want to hear and what you believe. They tend to, first of all, most of your friends probably see things the way you do. Um, but also the more you click on things and the more you pay attention to things, you get more articles and more um, suggested issues or uh, links that agree with you. So you get stuck in that echo chamber. So it takes some effort actually to, to step outside of that comfort zone and hear the other side. And so if there's someone who's an intellectual who's talking about what you don't agree with, if you can click on that link and watch that video, see what they say, try to understand it better. And I would say to be real with ourselves, to recognize that you might think you're 100% sure about what you think or believe, but it's probably not 100%. And the way we think and feel and view things does tend to change and evolve over time. And what can actually promote that evolution is having conversations with those people around you. And I think friends are afraid to talk about politics now. I know it's always something that we're not supposed to talk about um, at the dinner table, but politics has become this hot button issue because people feel like they have to so vehemently disagree with the other side where there's no view to just agree to disagree or see things differently, but still be okay to talk, have that communication and have that discourse and recognize that we can actually learn from each other. I'm not good and you're not evil. Neither one of us is. We just might see things a different way. And actually, if we talk about it after our conversation, we both might see things slightly different than when we started that conversation. But if we're not open to it, if we don't even accept that there might be some more truth out there than what we already know, we're going to miss on learning and growing in that way. All right, going into our last commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, Dr. Delaqui. Hi, thanks for calling. Thank you for giving me time, and sure. also thank you for your good program. My pleasure. And thank thank you. your father to make that all possible. Yes, I thank him too. Thank you very much. Thank you for calling. Let me know what your question is. Yes, I have uh, four grandchildren. The mm-hmm. oldest one, I mean, I have two daughters. Each have two. Mm-hmm. These um, o- oldest one is ten, and the brother, the two boys. Brother is seven, mm-hmm. and like. Past one year ago, he was asking, whenever we asked him what you want for your birthday or for no rules for Christmas, he was saying, I want an Amazon card. So he can shop at Amazon whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. And the other brother is uh, three years younger. He want to follow that too. He was asking for that too, and he wanted, uh, we did that. And recently, they asked him for the cash so they can go to the store and. Mm-hmm get whatever they want. And do you think it's okay to give them a cash and um, they spend it the way they want it or ask them at least save like 20% in the bank and spend the other 80% or just let them have whatever they want? I mean, I think that that's fine with the gifts or the gift card, letting them get what they want. I mean, if you got them a gift like you bought them, let's say, a shirt, you wouldn't say put 20% of the shirt in the bank. So, you know, 
giving them a gift means they can do with it what they want. Now, if the parents want to talk to them about saving or financial responsibility, which maybe it's too young. I mean, you can have conversations if they're open to it or if they want to talk about it, uh, they can do that. But I think if you're giving them a gift, in my opinion, it's a gift for them to do whatever they want with it. So um, I think that's, that's fine. That's, yeah. Um, yeah, they. Um, we asked them if they want to save some of it. They said, no, we don't want it. We want to spend all of it. So we don't know what to do. So listen to them. And, and the other two youngest one, um, my other daughter, like she has eight years old and um, six years old. And they following them too. They wanted the cash. Mm-hmm. So they all um, gang up together to get the cash and spend it, whatever they wanted. I, I I see that as okay. What's your concern about them asking for cash? Would you what What's better if they asked for, let's say, a certain clothes or something else? Why Why would that be better? Well, they buy some good stuff, and they buy some like junky stuff. Mm-hmm. Just use it one day or half an hour and throw them away. Mm-hmm. But some stuff they buy the good. They buy like jerseys and stuff like that for the exercise the, um, for soccer, for the basketball, everything like that. But mm-hmm. not all of them. They just waste some of it. So that's what we concern about. Is, mm-hmm. is it okay to do that or no? We just ask them to save it. To me, I think it's okay because, you know, you're giving them that responsibility to to buy things and to, to have that. Also, having them choose for themselves is better than to pick for them to give them that feeling too. So to me, it sounds okay. You're giving them an amount of money you're okay giving them and then assume it's gone and they're going to do whatever they want with it. And I wouldn't judge them too much for what they do and tell them, oh, see, you bought that thing that was a waste of money and this is a good use of money. Give I would give them that freedom to choose what they want to do with that money. Again, if you're giving them a gift, then it's up to them what they do with the money. Um, exactly. So I would think that's okay. To me, that seems fine. And it's okay for the, um, like, six years old and seven years old do the same thing, the, the other younger one? What's, again, what's your concern about? I'm trying to understand what you're worried about. Uh, just just to buy, not buying, not having a good choice to pick up the good stuff. They just buying stuff using it, like, especially the young one, the like six years old, don't know what to buy. They just buy stuff anymore, and I don't know, just that's, play for a minute. Yeah, but that seems fine. That That's what they like. I mean, look, I'm sure if we go in your house, we'll find something that you bought that you only used once or barely used yourself, right? So I, I don't think it's such a horrible thing. I think it's actually good. Let them experience it. This is actually something parents do a lot, not just about buying things, but we think, well, because we know better, which first of all, we don't necessarily as adults know better, but because we think we assume we know better, that we should make the decisions for them which is wrong in a few ways. One, as I just said, we're not necessarily sure we're even right. Uh, There's no reason to believe we necessarily know better, especially when it comes to preference. I can't tell what someone else wants more than what they can tell me. But also because we're taking away their opportunity to make decisions to and have experiences with that. So maybe even they buy something and they say, and then they do realize that was a waste of money or I actually wish I didn't buy that. I want to buy this. And they learn things like, you know, it's not good to buy things that are this way and I'd rather buy it that way. So we want them to even have the experiences and and 
maybe feel bad about it, feel good about it, whatever they do to go through it. And then in life too, parents think they have to protect their kids from getting hurt or getting sad. Or if they're having an issue with a friend at school, we have to solve it for them. We want to let them have the power to think about it and decide what to do. And a lot of times they'll get it wrong and that's okay because that's how they're going to learn and grow and have those experiences. So to me, when you say they're buying the quote unquote wrong things or it's a waste of money, um, I think there's several things that I, I would disagree with about that. But even if it was a waste of money, I would say let them have that experience and then grow from it rather than take it away and say, well, we have to decide how they spend their money. I think it's actually good. Even a part of allowance, which I think can be good for kids to have, if we give them that, is to give them that idea of looking at, okay, I have this much money. What do I want to spend on it? How do I want to use it? How do I you know, make it last the week or the month or whatever it is and have those opportunities to, to learn from that? So to me, I think it's great. Even the six-year-old, let, let her... I think it was a her, figure it out, and I think that sounds fine to me. Right, that, that's true. I got my answer. Thank you so much. Sure, thank you for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And so, as I was mentioning with her, um, I think parents far too often take away children's uh, ability or children's opportunities to make decisions for themselves. And the reason why... I can say this is because I see the results of this. You see young adults who have not been given the opportunity to make decisions, have been directly or indirectly told that they don't know what to do or they won't make the right decision, so let me make it for you. And it could be comforting for the child and it's comforting for the adult or the parent to think I'm protecting my kid and I'm taking care of them. But we're robbing them of the opportunity of making decisions and telling them through this process that they can't make their own decisions. They won't know what to do. They're going to get it wrong if they make the decision. And so when they're six and seven and they're deciding what toys to buy or what to do with their money, it doesn't seem so significant and the consequences are not that significant. But as they get older, and now the decisions are things like, what do I study or what career do I want to choose? Or who do I want to choose to marry? And there are these big decisions with big consequences. Now they feel completely ill-equipped to make those decisions. They don't trust themselves to listen to themselves to decide what to do. And they might want to ask other people to make those decisions for them when they're actually decisions that only they can really make at the end of the day. They can talk to people, get their advice, get their feedback. But when you talk about choosing your career, you have to be interested. You have to be passionate about it. You have to feel that it's your strengths and your capabilities and unique abilities that will be shown or displayed using that career. I can't do that or someone else can't do that for you. Or when it comes to picking a partner, yes, it could be good to get feedback from people, even go to a therapist and explore yourself and explore the relationship and what you have. But at the end of the day, you have to feel attracted and feel connected with that person. No one else can make that decision for you or can feel that for you. But so often we see kids who are never given the opportunity to make decisions. Their parents were overprotective or were judgmental of their decisions from a very young age. And now they never feel like they can make the right choice. They doubt themselves and they have 
severe anxiety when it comes to making sometimes even the smallest decisions, but especially when it comes to the bigger ones. So when you're with your kids and when you see your child having these opportunities to decide, I always tell parents, you have to be able to have a small picture view and a big picture view, both at the same time and be able to, in a way, go back and forth. So you have to have the small picture in the moment view so that you're empathizing with your child. You don't minimize things they're going through. You validate their experience. So you're with them in the moment, but you also have the bigger picture view that you know that you're supposed to help them grow and develop to become an individual on their own, to have their own experiences and to have their own trust in themselves. So if we get too caught up in either one, we might miss something. And many parents, they're so fixated on the moment to moment and trying to prevent their kid from being upset that they say, okay, I have to make this decision for my kid because if he makes the choice, he's going to be sad tomorrow. So I have to make it for him. Not realizing that maybe it's okay if he's a little bit sad tomorrow about what happens, but then he'll learn and grow from it. And then he'll be more equipped to make the bigger decisions later on in his life, to trust himself, to rely on himself, to realize that even when things go wrong, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. You might be down for a little bit, or you might have a setback, but you can overcome that. But if we're too fixated and focused on the small picture of, I have to make sure you feel okay right now. And if I can prevent any pain or sadness, that's my job as a parent, which many people, many parents think is their role. We miss out on letting our children actually grow. And the only way we grow is through some level of discomfort and sometimes even pain. That's how we grow and we develop. So when you're with your kids and when you're trying to help them, recognize that sometimes helping them is actually letting them make mistakes. And sometimes helping them is having them feel pain in the moment. When you take your child to get a vaccine, that hurts. That shot hurts more than not getting the shot. But we don't say, well, because I don't want my kid to cry right now, I'm not going to let them get the vaccine. We know that it's going to hurt, but it's going to help protect my child and their future health, and it's worth it. So I'm in the moment with my child where I recognize he or she is crying because of the pain, and I don't minimize that. But I also don't get so caught up in the fact that because it's hurting, we're not going to do the shot. I can recognize we can do both. We're going to have the shot. It's going to hurt, but it's going to inoculate you and protect you for the future. Same thing goes in other aspects of their life. My child is maybe going to be sad tomorrow because they didn't finish their homework tonight, but that doesn't mean I should finish their homework for them so they don't face that consequence because that facing that consequence will actually help them grow. So I'm going to have to actually be okay with letting my child be a little bit sad tomorrow because I know that's actually in his or her long-term best interests and will teach them much more than if I take care of this and avoid the consequence for them or make them avoid the consequence. So we have to give our kids that space to, to get bumps and bruises and scrapes, both physically and emotionally, and also give them the space to make decisions, knowing that sometimes they will get them wrong just like we do, but knowing that in getting them wrong, it actually will help contribute to them growing and that it's good for them to get them wrong and to make their mistakes now when the stakes are lower so that as they get older, they'll trust themselves and become better at making the right choices and better choices and even will have the ability to make choices because that's what they're going to need to do time and time again every day and especially when it comes to the big things in their life. So we have to, we have to love our kids. We have to let them hurt sometimes.
we have to let them be on their own in some ways, meaning that we let them make their own choices and don't get in the way of their development. All right, we're reaching the end of tonight. So I want to announce the book of the week for this weekend. Before I do, I've gotten so many recommendations and people um, have told me books and I always appreciate that. So please feel free to send your recommendations to me through uh, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter for books I can read for books of the week. Um, but the book for this week is The Power of Different by Gail Saltz. The Power of Different, the link between disorder and genius. Looking forward to sharing that with you next Monday, but I'll be on the air again this Wednesday at 12 noon. All right. Thank you to our caller and the listeners out there. And thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night.